Welcome back to Unwatchable. I am your host, Chloe Rodriguez, and I am so excited to be back with you guys today because we are covering a crazy, crazy show. We're going to be talking about love in the time of Corona. This is a rom-com that originally aired on the network Freeform, but I personally found it on Hulu. It's a four-part rom-com series. Each episode is about 25 to 45 minutes. And as the name would suggest, it is all about love stories during the time of the coronavirus, a pandemic that has yet to end. So as you can imagine, this is a very odd show, not only to talk about, but just to watch. The experience of watching a show about something that is still happening is very off-putting. It it seems a little bit Twilight Zone-esque, and I'm going to be analyzing how they made this, why they made this, speculating on why they thought this was a good idea other than just a blatant cash grab. But before I get into all of that, I just wanted to thank you guys so much for your support for this podcast. I've been getting a lot of downloads lately, so I wanted to say hello to all of the new listeners who might be joining us. For those of you who don't know, my name is Chloe. I am a 25-year-old with a degree in film and television, specifically in screenwriting. And on this podcast, Usually I sit down with a guest who also has a degree in media and we talk about television or film tropes. We discuss characters, really like to break down and analyze all different facets of pop culture. But today it's just going to be me. But thank you so much for listening, you guys. If you like what you're hearing on this podcast, please go ahead and leave a five-star rating. Leave me a review. I would love to hear any comments that you guys have. Follow me on Instagram at Puffs. Follow this podcast on Instagram at Unwatchable with Chloe Rodriguez. And uh, share it with a friend. Share it around. I I would love to get, you know, more and more people listening. And I think this might be a great episode to start them off with because it is so topical and because we're going to be focusing a lot on analyzing one of the craziest things I've ever seen. So I'm going to start off by breaking down the premise of the show with you guys. I will start by breaking down the synopsis. Um, This is a show that follows four main storylines throughout every episode, but Instead of going through it by doing episode one, episode two, episode three, and then episode four, I thought that it might make a little bit more narrative sense to instead take you through each storyline individually, uh, just take you through the character arcs that we see over the course of all four episodes. I just think that's an easier way to break it down. If you guys uh, don't want any spoilers about the plot of this and you purely want to hear my analysis and my experience as a viewer, I will go ahead and put a timestamp down below as to where I really start heading into the analysis. But before then, I have to give you guys a breakdown of these storylines because it's just insane to me. I was talking to Jamie Andrews and Jared Kopsiak on my episode uh, from two weeks ago, and I was talking to them about this show, and I mentioned that it it's odd to watch, and it's really odd to connect with these characters when 
it's based off of events that have not concluded. It's like uh, if Saving Private Ryan came out before the end of World War II had even happened. It kind of reminds me of when, like, 21-year-old YouTube stars put out a memoir and you're like, what? you haven't, like, your life isn't even over yet. Like, the, your life has just begun. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Why are you writing a memoir about a life that's barely even reached an end point? Uh, that's kind of how this feels. They talk about events in this show that are <laughs> really, like, the body is barely even cold yet. So those are my preliminary thoughts. Uh, let's just get right into the breakdown of Love in the Time of Corona. The official synopsis of this show is Love in the Time of Corona follows the lives of people who are looking for love, sex, and connection during the COVID-19 pandemic while social distancing. Pretty much all you need to know. It's not that complicated. Let's go ahead and start with the storyline that I think is Maybe I'll have the most positive things to say about this storyline, uh, and that is the storyline between James and Sade. Sade is played by Nicolette Robinson, and James is played by Leslie Odom Jr., famous for his stint as Aaron Burr in the show Hamilton. They are kicking off this entire series for us, and they have the very first scene that we get to see, that we are blessed with, in love in the time of corona we start out and james is gearing up as if he's going off to war he's putting on gloves he is putting on a mask he's putting on a face shield he's got disinfected he's loaded up he is raring to go and we have sade listing him off instructions for his brave battle she says don't take off your mask Sanitize your credit cards. Stand six feet apart from people. He goes, check, check, check. And he is off on his brave mission to the grocery store. She goes, I don't have a good feeling about this. As if her husband is an idiot and has never been to the grocery store in his entire life. This is a wonderful way to kick off the series because it pretty much tells you uh, everything you need to know about the overall tone of this show. They're trying to be very lighthearted and funny about everything. I think this scene, even though it's like 30 seconds long, really showcases exactly what is so jarring about watching this show. And that's the fact that they are treating this narrative with a sense of, remember when, uh, even though this is something that's still happening? Like, usually, if you watched a scene like this, most of the humor would come from the fact that you're like, oh my god, I remember I remember gro- going grocery shopping in 2020 and how crazy it seemed. Like, just the simple act of grocery shopping felt like you were going off on some, some brave mission. <laughs> Those were the days. Those were the days. It's great that things aren't like that anymore. Uh, but they are. I went to the grocery store yesterday in a mask and the cashiers were wearing gloves and face shields. So it's hard to really grasp what they're trying to call out as absurdity, even though for us, yes, it is absurd, but it's also reality at the moment. And that's really a great summation of 
why this show doesn't really work uh, coming out so soon, but we will we'll touch on that more as I go through it. I also want to point out that they didn't really give a exact starting date for when this is supposed to take place. It just starts with the title card, A Few Weeks Into Quarantine, which I'm guessing is supposed to be around early March. I know that that's when Los Angeles went into quarantine. Uh, But again, that could be different depending on where you live. And they're really not trying to put a pin in an actual time frame for us. They're kind of just letting us figure it out, I guess. Uh, Possibly because it would seem absurd for them to have a title card that says March 2020 when it's currently only September 2020, but we'll let that slide. Now from here, we're introduced to Sade's best friend, who she is continuously FaceTiming throughout this storyline. Her friend is interesting because her friend is supposed to represent how dating has changed uh, during the pandemic. So she's constantly talking to her about, oh, I went on a FaceTime date with this guy. I went on a FaceTime date with this guy, blah, blah, blah. She is virtually dating a handful of men, and one of them has graciously asked her to quarantine with him. Essentially, her storyline is meant to play off the fact that at the beginning of quarantine, a lot of people uh, decided to quarantine with people that maybe they were just starting a relationship with, maybe they weren't that close. Uh, And it kind of puts you in an accelerated environment where you're already living with this person that you barely know. Uh, Throughout the course of her storyline, she keeps popping back in every so often uh, and complaining about this guy that she's known for two minutes that she decided to quarantine with. And then ultimately, at the end, she gets the coronavirus, which she so elegantly puts to her friend as saying, I got the Rona. Uh, And that's pretty much all you need to know about this girl. Uh, She is not important, although she is meant to represent pretty much every annoying person that you ever met at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, So that's really all I want to say about her. She's very cliched, and they basically just use her to talk about uh, dating quarantine cliches. So whoop-de-doo. James is back from his heroic trek to the Albertsons, and uh, she, he, he bought the wrong yogurt for their three-year-old daughter. She doesn't like peach yogurt. And this turns into a whole fight uh, and an expositional excuse, essentially, to talk about the main problem between these characters. And that is that Sade has put her life on hold for the past few years to raise their daughter, while James has been off. He is a fabulous producer, apparently, who travels far and wide producing movies and shows. And because of that, he doesn't really know what the at-home routine anymore is. Uh, Now that he is working from home, he is learning all of the things that he missed while he was gone, and he's getting a first-hand insight into what it's like to be a stay-at-home parent. Which I have to say, out of the storylines that they introduce on this show, This is probably the most relatable and realistic. I think working from home has been one of the largest transitions that we have faced as a society, which sounds very dramatic, but it's true. A a big portion of our day used to be spent going into an office or another type of workspace and hanging out with people aside from your family and then coming home at night. And... 
that's a transition that is continuing to happen for most people. So I'd say that this is the least cliche storyline out of the four we're going to talk about today. But there is still some ridiculousness, of course. I want to say as a side note that this whole scene, Sade and James get into this weird passive-aggressive argument about the fact that he bought the wrong yogurt. And I'm just saying I need more details in order to properly determine who is right in this argument. Because if Sade didn't write down what flavor of yogurt, then that's on her. You can't just write down yogurt with no flavor specification if it's that important. Get your head in the game, Sade. But on the other hand, it would seem that her assertion is correct and that perhaps this is a 33-year-old grown man who doesn't know how to do grocery shopping because he didn't even check to see if there was a back of the list. So maybe Sade was right to not have a good feeling about this. Maybe this man hasn't stepped foot in a Stater Brothers in years. Get your head in the game, James. Stick to the list. Uh, During this fight, they also give a nice little wink-wink-nudge-nudge to the fact that so many people are getting their groceries delivered now, and Sade says something about just post-mating the rest of the groceries that they were missing. Uh, So there's a a nice little uh, shoehorned-in corona moment for you guys. Remember when we were all ordering our groceries? (laughs) So glad they didn't leave that detail out. Naturally, they decide to solve all of their marital issues the only logical way that they know how, and that's by agreeing to have another baby. Because that's how the old saying goes. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes a baby, then comes the inevitable resentment from putting off all of your hopes and dreams in order to help raise that baby while your husband flies off to who knows where while he's producing a bunch of movies with Hollywood starlets, and then all it takes is a worldwide pandemic to finally get your husband to settle down and come home and finally see what you've been doing for the past few years and how you've ultimately contributed to his life so much in ways that he's never decided to stop and appreciate, and then comes a fight about yogurt, and then comes a baby in a baby carriage, part two. I want you guys to know that I just improvised all of that in essentially one breath and uh, put a, an F in the chat for my lungs. Anyway, we're starting off episode two with Sade and James, just humping like crazy jackrabbits all over the place and then talking about how they're humping like crazy jackrabbits all over the place in order to make a baby. Life is good, their marriage is restored. But things are about to take a quick turn as uh, James is coming back from a run and he sees the news footage of Ahmad Arbery's shooting. Now, I do wanna take a moment here and explain why I think this is maybe the best out of the four storylines we're going to cover today. And that's really all to do with the performance of Leslie Odom Jr. and Nicolette Robinson. I think if you watch the show, you'll know what I mean, but nobody is really that good of an actor in this show except for these two people. And I think that's very important considering the fact that they got perhaps the most serious storyline. While this series doesn't really touch fully on the Black Lives Matter movement, This scene in particular is very important because it kickstarts off this other layer that they're adding into the story of James and Sade. It brings about this underlying fear that James carries with him for the rest of the series, and that's his worry about raising black children in America. 
And while this is set before the murder of George Floyd and before the huge resurgence in the Black Lives Matter movement that we saw around May and June of this year, I am happy that they chose to touch on it even just a little bit. And I really get the sense from their performance that Nicolette Robinson and Leslie Odom Jr. really wanted to take it seriously and do it justice. And I think that it would be disingenuous of me to not point this out just for the purposes of, you know, being funny and continuing to poke fun at how stupid and ridiculous this show is. I I think I would be remiss if I didn't point out the fact that they do generally seem to be trying with this storyline and really think that they got the right actors to do it justice. So after seeing footage of the Ahmaud Arbery shooting, uh, James is kind of sent into a tailspin. Uh, Sade is buzzing about getting pregnant. She's talking to all of her friends and family about how excited she is. Uh, Meanwhile, James is very closed off and worried. Now he's starting to also worry about the pandemic. He's looking up uh, statistics and reading aloud all the deaths that had happened in NYC. Uh, Because this is early March, they had only about 824 deaths in one day Uh, which, as we know, cases just kept going up from there. This is definitely when his character takes a turn for the worse and starts to essentially make his wife feel bad about being excited for wanting to get pregnant, even though that's something that they had previously agreed on. Uh, He basically takes it all back and tells her, like, we never said we were going to do that. What are you talking about? And uh, understandably, she is pissed by his attempt to gaslight her essentially. We're opening episode three with yet another passive-aggressive fight between James and Sade over food. Is this what parents argue about? Like, I don't have any children and I'm not married. Is this how people fight when they have kids? Is everything just centered around, like, snacks? Are you just like, oh, you forgot the goldfish? Oh yeah, well, well maybe this goldfish had a chance to marry that rich Teddy Graham, but instead, this goldfish decided to jump into a Ziploc container with that cheese it that never takes out the trash or does any dishes, and now the goldfish wakes up every morning and thinks about what could have happened if she had just agreed to move into that three-story lunchbox with the Teddy Graham! Is that what fighting becomes after you have children? Anyway, we get into a big fight about how James doesn't know how their child likes to eat lunch because he's never around and he doesn't know how to cut her crust the right way. And then Sade, in a big display of self-righteousness, throws the peanut butter and jelly that James made in the garbage because he doesn't cut it correctly for their child. And I'm all for big petty displays. I, I love them. Go to town. Go crazy. But we do not waste chunky jiff in this house, okay? You could have eaten that. Also in this scene, it's revealed that Sade, a grown woman with a child, does not drink milk without ice cubes in it. Which now I'm kind of starting to side with James over his disinterest in having another child because clearly Sade is a sociopath who must be stopped at any cost. Essentially, they start to reconcile. James admits that he perhaps has not spent enough time at home and perhaps hasn't appreciated Sade enough. But then, once everything starts to look like it's going to be A-OK, he drops the bomb that he never wants children again, ever. 
So now we're on episode four, the conclusion of James and Sade's storyline. And I have to say, this is really the best part of the entire show. James has a conversation on the phone with his mom about how scared he is about raising children during this time of racial injustice. They talk about the Ahmad Arbery video, asks her what it was like to raise two black sons. He says it's been 400 years without progress, and he asks how she and his dad are not just angry all the time. It's obviously a very poignant conversation. He finally breaks down and decides to talk to Sade about everything. And I have to give credit where credit is due, because I think a lot of times on this podcast, I focus a lot about the writing and whether or not the writing for something is good or bad. But I really have to say, that when you get the right actor for something and you get someone who is an incredible performer, they can really take coal and make it a diamond. And that's what Leslie Odom Jr. does in this scene. He has an incredible monologue about how scared he is and how angry he is and how it's hard for him as a black man to justify bringing more black babies into this world just to see them be racially targeted, to have to teach them about a history where they're constantly being kicked around, looked down on, uh, teaching them about a system that was created to be against them. And I think most of the emotional moments in Love in the Time of Corona are very cheesy and very difficult to take seriously. And I think with any other actor, this scene would have kind of turned out to be the same way. But I think it's really just a testament to Leslie Odom Jr.'s performance and how seriously he took it and the fact that he wanted to do it justice. And I think in her reaction to it, Nicolette Robinson also does an incredible job. We're not left on a happy-go-lucky note of like, it's all gonna be okay because we're together and we're in love. Instead, she talks about the fact that their ancestors have been through so much and kept on going and that it would be a disservice for them to just give up after everything that they've been through. And we're left with a really great moment where, you know, everything is not all tied up neatly in a bow. We do get the acknowledgement of the fact that This is a huge issue that is still continuing, and it has continued for hundreds and hundreds of years, but they are still going to continue to live their lives in the way that they want to. I know I went a little bit long on that description, but I think that this was maybe the most important of all the storylines, and I wanted to do it justice. I will be skipping through the next three a little bit quicker. Now, the next storyline focuses on an 18-year-old girl named Sophie and her parents. Now, Sophie is an interesting character because she is the human embodiment of Twitter. Her main personality traits are that she's dramatic, annoying, and easily offended. Her whole personality is girl who rattles off annoying statistics because the writers of the script wanted you to know about these things and couldn't figure out a realistic way to shoehorn them in. Her story opens with a FaceTime date between her and her boyfriend. They're discussing the fact that they are freshmen in college and lamenting the fact that they have to switch over to online-only classes. She's nervous about the death rate and starts just spouting a bunch of statistics about it. Her boyfriend Jordan says, why can't old people stay in and young people go out and stimulate the economy? Sophie says, 
Not everything is about money. This disproportionately affects black, brown, and poor communities. He says, for your information, I watched The Help last night. She says, that movie is problematic, and then goes off on a whole tangent about the white savior complex. You know, like how you always do in conversations with your friends. Now, my problem with Sophie isn't the things that she believes. I mean, most of what she's saying is true. But this just isn't how people have conversations with one another. And really, this scene represents another huge flaw in this series, and that is the development of the characters. This conversation tells me nothing about the characters, but it tells me about what they believe. Or rather, it tells me what the writers believe and want to pass on to people. If you listened to my episode about Jane the Virgin, you know that a huge problem I had with that show towards the end of its run is that instead of discussing politics through the development of characters and exploring their backstory like they used to do in the first few seasons, all of a sudden there becomes a shift where a character will outright just state a political opinion and list off a bunch of statistics and facts in order to support that opinion, when in reality, that's not really how people develop their beliefs. And that's just not how conversations work between people. It's not realistic. When you sit around and discuss politics with your friends, you don't outright come out and demonize them for having another opinion as you. You say, hmm, well, I kind of actually see it this way, and then you explain why, or you talk about your own personal experiences and how that has affected your belief system. Now, don't get me wrong, I consider myself a pretty progressive person, and I actually agree with a lot of the things that Sophie's talking about in this scene, but I think when you write a character whose simple purpose is to spout off political slogans and tell the audience point blank what you want them to think, it actually comes across as performative. And even as someone who might share these same beliefs or someone who is not going to argue with the facts that are being listed here, I feel as an audience member like I'm getting these things crammed down my throat. And in that way, it makes me actively want to tune out this character, stop watching the program, and I even regret agreeing with them on a level because they're just so goddamn annoying. Anyway, that's Sophie. Then we get a scene between her parents, and it's essentially just a scene where they keep rattling off like, ha ha ha, COVID jokes, bleh. They go, oh, it's time to wash and sanitize every hour, and they get out a big old bucket of Purell and start rubbing it behind their ears and shit. Her dad's wearing a dress shirt, but then also wearing bike shorts, and he goes, oh, I put on my video conference apparel. Nya, 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 jokes. It's revealed that the main storyline is going to center around the fact that the mother and father are actually separated, but they have been hiding it from their daughter because they think that she's very intense and they don't want to deal with her. That is a running theme throughout this storyline, is that they think their daughter is annoying, they talk shit about her all the time, it's honestly very funny. Wouldn't you believe it, uh, Sophie's boyfriend breaks up with her after what I can only assume was a two to three hour lecture about the dangers of watching the movie The Help. And she is so distraught that she asks if she can sleep in the bed with her mother and father. Uh Uh-oh, that's putting them in an awkward position because they're separated. Oh, hijinks. We start off episode two with maybe like the worst thing that I've ever had to witness. 
In an attempt to cheer up Sophie after her breakup, her parents decide to throw her a living room quarantine dance party. In footage that I can only assume will later be used to torture war criminals, her father decides to whip, nene, dab, and perform the mannequin challenge. Topical. Now, as it turns out, Sophie actually posted a photo of her parents sleeping and cuddling together in bed that morning, and she put it up on her Instagram. Well, wouldn't you know it, her father, who has been separated from her mother this entire time, is secretly dating a very young hot Pilates instructor who follows his daughter on Instagram. She then calls him and yells at him because she believes that he may be in the process of getting back together with his wife. It should be noted that they're trying to make this woman look like she's insane, when really she's actually 100% right. I guess it's because you're supposed to be rooting for the parents to get back together, but they're really trying to do GG dirty on this one, because they make her say things like, um, excuse me, I am your hot girlfriend. You know, how people talk to each other. Anyway, he receives this call right when he was about to open a bottle of wine with Sophie's mom, and they were reconnecting over the past. He then decides to ditch her and go see his hot girlfriend. And Sophie's mom is visibly upset by this. We end episode two with Sophie being very upset that she's realized her ex has already gotten together with a new girl. Her friend invites her to go to a quarantine party where, I quote, they will be serving AMFs out of syringes so that they can give each other the virus. Ooh, where are your morals now, Sophie, huh? Where'd that high horse go, Sophie, huh? Did he gallop away? You're going to a quarantine party, bitch. Episode three is kind of boring. Sophie's mom is upset because her work trip to Venice gets canceled. Sophie's dad's hot girlfriend finds out through Instagram that Sophie went to the party and lets her dad know what a tattletale. She gets into a huge fight with her parents about it, and then as she's going through her Instagram to figure out who could have possibly told him about her excursion, she finds Gigi. She looks on her profile and finds a photo that Gigi posted with her dad, and because she doesn't know about the separation, is now convinced that her father is having an affair. Sophie's dad is rummaging through old artifacts in the attic and finds their wedding vows. You're getting more and more hints that he also wants another shot with Sophie's mom. Sophie confronts him about the alleged affair, and finally her parents come clean and tell her that they're separated, culminating in one of the best lines I've ever heard, where Sophie screams at them, There's already a pandemic, and now I find out my parents are sus as hell. Funniest line I've ever heard, my parents are sus as hell. Long story short, she ends up having a heart-to-heart with her dad, they make up, they decide to do something nice for Sophie's mom, and because she was so sad that her Venice trip got cancelled, they give her a gondola ride in the family pool, and they dress up like, what are they called, like gondoliers? And they talk in a bad Italian accent for way too long, for like the entire scene. And this scene could have been cute if it didn't go on for like five awkward minutes of this. <laughs> them just like steering the huge big ass gondola through like a tiny ass pool. The parents reconnect, they apologize to one another, and they decide to get their marriage together again. 
I don't want to be overly negative, but I'm just going to let you know that the main actors of this storyline, Ava Bellows as Sophie, her dad is played by Gil Bellows, and Raya Kilstedt is her mother. Uh, They're not the best. (laughs) I I don't think they're really known for that much. Uh, Raya Kilstedt is known for her starring role in Home Alone 3. I'm assuming that she played uh, Catherine O'Hara's part. And Gil Bellows was apparently in the Shawshank Redemption. But I have to say across the board, these are not the best performances. I don't know if it's because these people were obviously not given the best material and therefore probably threw in the towel. I don't know if they're just like not that great. I don't know. But as bad as they are and as annoying as this storyline was, uh, none of it compares to the next storyline we have to talk about. It is my extreme displeasure to have to introduce you to the worst people in the world, Ellie and Oscar, played by singer Rainy Qualley and 13 Reasons Why Tommy Dorfman, respectively. The weird thing about this storyline is while it has the least amount of substance and features probably the least endearing love story out of all of them, it is for some reason given the largest portion of screen time. I don't know if it's because these are like the youngest characters and they're supposed to represent Gen Z and This came out on Freeform, which is a very, like, Gen Z tilted network. But for some reason, they are given the most attention. I don't know if these actors are popular. I I really don't think that they've been in that many things. But they're literally the worst. Let's dive into it. Ellie and Oscar are roommates. They live in, like, a big-ass two-story two-bedroom L.A. beach house? Even though she's a songwriter and he's like, I don't even know what. Somehow they can afford this together. Ellie is a pretentious know-it-all and Oscar is whiny and self-obsessed. Together, they make up the power couple. They sit on their balcony, giving each other tandem foot rubs and flirting, even though it's kind of made clear from the beginning that Oscar is gay. And the only reason that I hit that point so hard is because it's a very important part of the storyline. They also like to spy on their neighbor, who is a guy who lives directly below their balcony and likes to shower outside. And for some reason, this is played as like lighthearted and fun and kind of funny that they're like both interested in the same dude. Although I feel like if the roles were reversed and he was a woman, then this would be considered very creepy and violating. Uh, I think it is anyway, even if he is a man. Anyway, nothing substantial really happens in that first scene. The second scene, they are taking a bath together and shaving each other's legs. I'm gonna pause here for a second. Ask the question, am I the weird one? Because this does not seem like a normal thing that friends do or that roommates do together. I'm 25. I'm old. I can't uh, pretend that I know what the kids are up to these days. But these characters are supposedly around my age. 
But whatever. I guess this is a thing. Anyway, they're lamenting their sad dating lives, and they decide to pick dates for each other on the apps. Oscar and Elle switch phones, and she notices that he has his preference set to men and women. He then lets her know that he has developed a recent interest in pursuing women as well as men. Her feelings are obviously hurt, and the rest of their storyline centers around the fact that she, I guess, is in love with him and wants him to be in love with her, and she's kind of offended because she didn't know that he was open to women. So up until then, she hasn't said anything. But now that he's open to women, she's thinking, why not me? I want to make it clear that that is not the part of the characters that I think is annoying. And I do like that there is a sexually fluid character on this show. It's literally just their personalities that are so grating to me. Anyway, they run around, they do TikToks and TikTok dances which is something that gets mentioned a lot in this whole series, not even just with Ellie and Oscar, but TikTok is just offhandedly mentioned in, I think, like, Sade and James's storyline, in Sophie's storyline. I don't know if Freeform has, like, a stake in TikTok, but they are promoting the shit out of it. Anyway, Ellie and Oscar both go on the virtual dates that have been picked out for them by the other person, Oscars goes really well. He really connects with this guy named Sean. They talk about nasty LA vegan food and come up with a barrage of COVID-19 themed pickup lines for one another, including, you can't spell quarantine without you and I. If COVID-19 doesn't take you out, can I? Come over, we can use Purell as lube. And my personal favorite, I like my men like I like my virus. Easy to spread. I do have to give credit where credit is due and say that Jordan Gavaris, which is the guy who plays Sean, uh, Oscar's virtual date, is actually like pretty charming. And I think he's like probably the most likable character in this storyline. But meanwhile, Ellie, who is definitely the worst, is having a virtual date who she decides he hates because he watched the Justice League movie. Apparently he really likes superheroes, which she already thinks she's too cool for because we've established that she's a know-it-all and she reads books because she's just not like other girls. Anyway, her date mentions that he likes the movie Justice League and then goes on about how he loves the superhero universe and she is instantly turned off. She literally is so rude to him. She won't even look at him for the rest of the conversation. She pretends at one point that the video is frozen, but she's like blinking. So he obviously calls her out on it because he's not an idiot. She's being rude as fuck. Although in her defense, he does end the call by asking if he can see her boobs. So he's not Mr. Wonderful either, but still. I'm going to skip a lot of this storyline just because it's literally just Oscar and Sean talking to one another virtually. Now, remember what I said 10 minutes ago about Sophie and how she's very intense and essentially is just used as a plot device to tell the audience what the writer wants them to believe? Uh, well, that's the same thing here. At one point, Oscar calls Trump a transphobic dumpster fire, which... Again, I'm not disputing that opinion, but why does it matter? Why are we dedicating so much of our time to this? It doesn't add to the plot. Ellie is sad after eavesdropping on Oscar and Sean finally becoming official, and she goes to spy on Shower Man out on her balcony, 
which, surprise, surprise, Showerman catches her. And instead of being offended that someone has been spying on him this whole time, he starts flirting with her. His name is Adam. Once again, uh, Ellie annoys the shit out of me. They try to do these things where she's like, I'm just reading this book that no one's ever heard of because I'm so smart. And then, of course, she, like, walks into an umbrella on their patio because she's also clumsy because she's not like other girls. She doesn't have it together. She's so hot, but she doesn't even know it. That night, Oscar starts talking to her about how happy he is with Sean and how he's so grateful that she set them up. And in a display of pure selfishness, Ellie completely unloads on him and demands to know why he's not attracted to her, why he won't sleep with her, and tells him that she's in love with him and wants to get married and have his babies. But all hope is not lost because hot Adam from down the street leaves a care package on her doorstep filled with books and wine and cheese, you know, the standard fanfare that you would give to somebody who's been spying on you while you're taking showers and you've had one conversation with. Also, I don't know when this happened, but I wrote down a note that at some point she throws Adam a book that she was reading and then says, sorry, should have disinfected that first. So keep those COVID-19 jokes a coming. We can't get enough. Unsurprisingly, this whole storyline culminates in Ellie and Oscar sleeping together because, of course, and things are instantly awkward between them. Uh, she immediately goes to tell Adam that she is in love with Oscar and that they're together now. Uh, they have a talk about what are we? And it's clear that they like both don't want to be in a relationship, but they decide to be in one anyway. Anyway, Oscar FaceTimes Sean with the intent of breaking up with him, but instead he tells him that he is falling in love with him. Then he also tells him that he slept with Ellie, and Sean is surprisingly cool about it because they weren't exclusive. Anyway, Oscar has this big breakdown where he talks about the fact that even though he is falling in love with Sean, he just can't jeopardize anything with Ellie because she's the best person in, like, the world. And then Ellie bursts through the door and lets him know that, like, she just wants him to be happy. And now that they've had sex, she realizes that they should just be friends. And this whole conversation is happening in front of Sean, who is just <laughs> sitting there crying, listening to Oscar and Ellie talk about how much they love each other and how much their friendship is important to them. And then Ellie gets out her guitar and goes out on her balcony to serenade Adam, the song that she wrote that was clearly not sung live. And the singing, it's fine. She doesn't sound bad. It's just whatever. It's cheesy. But then we get to the single greatest scene that I've ever seen in anything. Sean and Oscar have now reconciled. Oscar joins Ellie out on the balcony. He's FaceTiming Sean and Sean says, hey, I want to let you know exactly how I feel about you. Look up. And Sean has hired a plane to fly through the sky past their home with a sign trailing behind it that reads, You can't quarantine love. Guys, this is played dead serious. I'm pretty sure Oscar cries. Like, <laughs> could you imagine dating someone for a month and they hire an airplane 
to go past your house with a sign that says you can't quarantine love while you're in the middle of a pandemic where millions of people are dying? And that's just supposed to make us all feel okay about things? And also, he does it the day that you slept with your best friend slash roommate? In what world? Sean and Oscar say I love you to one another. It's beautiful. And now that I'm looking back on it, perhaps Oscar isn't the worst person uh, to ever exist, but Ellie for sure is. She's annoying throughout the entire thing. I'm surprised she didn't have some bullshit, like, I'm smarter than you thing to say about that sign. I can't believe she wasn't like, oh, it should be you cannot quarantine love. That sounds more proper. <laughs> I'm not like other girls. Anyway, we have reached the fourth and final storyline, and I'm just going to let you know that this one is going to be extremely short because this storyline doesn't have much substance to it other than to tie together all of the previous storylines. Something that I have not touched on about the structure of Love in the Time of Corona is that it falls victim to what I call the Dan Fogelman effect. For those of you who don't know, Dan Fogelman is the writer of Crazy Stupid Love, and he is also the creator and showrunner of the hit NBC show, This Is Us. Now don't get me wrong, this is not a slight at Dan Fogelman, I think he is a brilliant writer. But he has a style that he really loves to pull on, and that is exploring different storylines that are later revealed to all connect in some sort of twist ending. You can see this in Crazy Stupid Love, you can see this in the pilot episode of This Is Us, and this structure follows throughout the rest of that show where you are following members of this family but through three different timelines of their life. And I've noticed that since that show premiered, there have been a lot of other shows that have tried to follow suit. Uh, for example, uh, A Million Little Pieces on NBC. Love in the Time of Corona tries to do the same thing by tying together all of these storylines at the very end through the character of Nanda. Nanda is played by L. Scott Caldwell, who is most famous for her role as Rose on the series Lost. Her storyline kind of focuses on the effect that the COVID-19 virus has had on elderly people. Uh, she is very scared. Her husband is suffering from Alzheimer's and is in and out of a retirement home constantly. But obviously, because of lockdown restrictions, they are now separated, where he is forced to stay in his retirement home. Meanwhile, she is all alone in their house, trying to scrape together their 50th anniversary party. She continues to check in on him via FaceTime, and it's made abundantly clear that his memory is getting worse and worse throughout the series. And honestly, that's pretty much it as far as her own story goes, because other than that, she's kind of used to fill in the gaps of other people's stories. By sending out the invitations for their 50th anniversary celebration, it's revealed that she is an ex-teacher of Sophie's. It also turns out that she's James's mother. He consistently calls and checks in on her. She asks when they're having another baby. She is the person that he talks to when he is upset about the idea of bringing a child into the world. There's also a whole subplot where uh, James's deadbeat brother, Diedrich, comes back into their lives and she's basically dealing with him. But essentially, there's just a lot of scenes of her 
talking about how you can prevent getting the virus or spreading the virus. There's a lot of scenes of her watching the news and taking notes about, you know, how things are progressing. I feel like the writers kind of reached a point where they were like, oh, shoot, we should probably be showing news footage or like, I don't know, have somebody actually concerned about tracking statistics and stuff. And then they were like, yeah, we'll give it to Nanda. Let's throw that old lady a bone, you know? Here's where things really take a turn into the Twilight Zone. So Nanda is heartbroken that they have to cancel their 50th anniversary celebration. And she's even more heartbroken that she can't be with her husband in person on that day because she can't enter the retirement facility to see him. So in order to make it up to his mother for their strained relationship, her long-lost son, Diedrich, decides to take her to the nursing facility where his father is staying. And I think you guys can guess what's about to happen here. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, where there was still hope in our eyes, and there were so many viral videos and pictures of people meeting their grandsons through hospital windows and holding hands with their loved ones through the glass. Uh, well, they decided to recreate those moments. They go to the window of her husband's room, and she puts her hand on the window, and she goes, Happy 50th anniversary! And he goes, Happy 50th anniversary! And it's supposed to be this tear-jerking moment. And all of a sudden, this happy, big band thumping music comes on, and we know we're all gonna be okay. And we hear cars honking behind them, because guess what else is happening, you guys? It's a celebration caravan. Yeah, yeah, you guys, you guys remember those things that people are still doing where uh, for special events, people will drive their cars down the street and honk at one another? Well, that's what they do. And oh my God, wouldn't you know it? Who's in the cars? It's, it's James and Sade. Oh, they came to support his parents. And oh, look who's that. It's Sophie, her favorite student, Sophie. And Sophie's parents, they're back together again. Oh, happy day. And as if that weren't tear-jerking enough, guess what flies overhead right as the cars are hooting and hollering and honking away? Wait, it's Sean's gift to Oscar, the airplane that reads, You can't quarantine love. It flies right over them, jeepers. And Nanda and her husband have a happy anniversary after all. And, and, and people drive through the streets and birds are chirping and the sun is out and the virus is cured and everyone who died during the pandemic pops back up in the morgue and goes, gotcha, joke's on you, you got pranked. And Kendall Jenner steps forward from the crowd and, and hands a can of Pepsi to a cop and they lay down their guns and peace is just spread far and wide and a, a rainbow comes out from the sky and there's there's no more sadness or pain because the good people at Freeform have put an end to all of our sorrows. Well done, love in the time of Corona. Well done. <clears throat> <coughs> Sorry, I, I just got choked up there for a moment, but we really should turn over to the analytical side of this. So let's get down to the nitty gritty. 
This series premiered on August 22nd of this year. All four episodes were directed by Joanna Johnson, and the series was written by Joanna Johnson, Heather Flanders, Lauren Bands, and Rashida Brady. It's worth noting that this was ordered to series by Freeform on May 7th, which I think normally would be a pretty quick turnaround for getting out a miniseries, but considering the fact that they're doing so little production on other shows right now, it does make sense how they could feasibly operate in such a quick turnaround time. It was actually kind of hard to find news about the production itself, although I did find a very funny article by the Associated Press with the (laughs) headline, Love in the Time of Corona is a Time Capsule of the Times. Which, uh, yeah, no shit. (laughs) That's what a time capsule is. I also found an article in Variety by Will Thorne. It was written on May 7th, 2020, where the executive vice president of programming and development at Freeform, Lauren Carraro, says, This is the perfect show for a generation who is learning to love and be loved in a time when the entire world is telling them to stay six feet apart. Although the constraints have been difficult during this time, immense creativity has flourished, and we could not be more grateful that Joanna brought this series to freeform. Joanna Johnson said, Love is a basic and central need. Finding it in the time of corona may pose unique challenges, but it won't stop us from forging great love stories, inspiring grand romantic gestures, and profound acts of kindness. And while that's all well and good, The biggest question that I have, and something that has yet to be addressed, is why now? While lots of people have been pitching the idea of a quarantine or coronavirus-based show, including Genji Cohen, the creator of Orange is the New Black, who is set to release a social distance anthology series with Netflix, Freeform is the first network to actually put out quarantine-based content. And when I say that, I'm not talking about you know, the Parks and Rec reunion special or talk show hosts doing their show from their homes. I mean, this is the first narrative piece that I have seen put out that has been specifically produced to display events occurring during the time of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I want to know why we had to have this put out right now. And I think if we're being honest with ourselves, we kind of knew that this was going to happen Entertainment is all about being the first, the biggest, and the best. And call this pure speculation, because there's no way that the executives would actually admit this, but this is all about that cash grab. You want to be the first. You want to be the most talked about. And they say that all publicity is good publicity, so even if it's considered controversial to put out a series like this quote-unquote too soon, that can still actually work to your benefit, because at least people are talking about you. On a positive note, though, I think that this is a very interesting insight into how things can be produced even while socially distancing. I mentioned earlier that it was ridiculous that Oscar and Ellie could afford to live in a house like that, and I stand by that. However, I think I would be remiss if I didn't point out how they actually were able to produce this, and that was by having everybody shoot in their own homes. I'm pulling this information from a Deadline article that was published by Dino Ray Ramos on June 29th of this year, and everybody was essentially sent equipment in order to be able to film themselves. Uh, Leslie Odom Jr. and Nicolette Robinson are a real-life couple who filmed this in their actual house. Same thing with Gil Bellows and Raya Kierstedt. They're 
actually married, and their daughter, Ava Bellows, played their daughter, Sophie. And you'll notice that any characters that they interact with who do not live with them are spoken to via a phone call or FaceTime. With Ellie, when she is talking to their neighbor, Adam, they are never standing next to each other side by side. All of their conversations are from a huge distance apart. She's on her balcony and he's in his yard below her. And I think that is my highest praise for this series, is that the production quality of it is still pretty high. It still looks good, it sounds good, and instead of having to do a show that takes place entirely on FaceTime, they were able to get their characters together in a creative enough way where it doesn't seem so obvious that this was a socially distanced production. It doesn't take you out of that world. I think there's a lot of value to that. I think it's really good to see something that was put together very quickly and following social distancing guidelines and see how they were still able to put together a narrative that made sense. Because we are in a new era of production and This does, in a way, serve as an example for how to do that. Especially in Los Angeles, where there's so many couples who are in the industry and living together, I think this is totally doable as long as you're flexible. In a Refinery29 article from August 21st of this year, uh, Joanna Johnson talked about how she had to go through several iterations of the script based off of who people were quarantining with. She said that she had originally written a script about two sisters who were quarantined together, but she couldn't find two available actresses who were quarantining together who could play sisters. Technologically speaking, everybody had to have their homes deep cleaned before allowing a few crew members to come in in full PPE and masks. They ran cables through the homes and set up Wi-Fi monitors. Johnson referred to it as super professional student film. All crew members were distanced and communicating solely through the use of walkie-talkies, and all cameras had to remain stationary for all indoor shoots. No dollies, no panning and tilting. They really had to strip everything down to the basics of what they could and couldn't film by using minimal camera movements. And as a viewer, honestly, nothing really seemed that off to me as far as cinematography. I think that's the part that actually turned out very well. Was the writing good? No. Was some of the acting very good? No. But directorially, I actually do think they were quite successful, and I would have preferred if this was a show pretty much about anything else. I think it would have been really cool if they had been able to produce a sitcom like this using the exact same technological adaptations that they did for this one. I just think that their choice of topic was very off-putting, and honestly, feels kind of like a cash grab considering the fact that this is an unresolved issue in the world. Allow me to put on my tinfoil hat here for a moment, but to me, Love in the Time of Corona didn't seem like it was created to be a rom-com series. It almost felt to me like propaganda. Now before you turn this podcast off in a rage, I just want to say that Yes, I believe that the coronavirus is real. I think it exists. I am not an anti-masker. I don't think that this is all a huge government conspiracy. And I believe that we should all be doing our best to protect ourselves and other people. I'm not saying that this is actually government-issued propaganda. What I am saying is that the writing is so on the nose 
that it feels almost like propaganda. It feels like this show is trying to convince you that COVID exists by having characters unnaturally spouting off statistics or ways that you can protect yourself and prevent the spread by randomly inserting real news clips about how the government is reacting. Although it is weird because on the same level, the fact that this show is even out in the first place almost makes it seem as if they're acting like this whole pandemic is over and done with. The bottom line is that this feels like a very unnecessary and poorly written episode of Black Mirror. It was just so surreal to think about the fact that I was sitting on my couch self-isolating and watching another character on television sitting on their couch self-isolating and watching television coverage of somebody talking about the news of a pandemic that these characters were isolating from, but I was also isolating from, but they were a few months behind me, so I knew what was happening, but they didn't know what was going to happen, but the people who wrote the show knew what was going to happen. Does that make sense? I think I'm spiraling. This show is going to give me a heart attack. And I still don't have any definitive statements about why they decided to make it so soon. I think if you are looking for a relaxing, fun, and good family-friendly time, uh, then this is rather unwatchable. (laughs) It's unsettling. If you're looking to sit on the couch and laugh about how cheesy something is with your friends and maybe smoke a bowl and go down a black mirror rabbit hole, uh, then I would encourage you to watch Love in the Time of Corona. At the end of the day, I just don't think that this is helping anybody. It tries to end on an optimistic note, but we already know that things don't get better from that point. If we are subscribing to the theory that this is set in around March or April of the COVID-19 outbreak, then we know that things are only going to get crazier from here. We know about George Floyd. We know about the protests. We know about the riots. We know about the wildfires. We know about the fucking killer bees that everyone was talking about. What happened to those wasps? Did we catch them? The point is, this show doesn't really do its job because... We know what's just around the bend for those characters. Not to be cynical, but we know that things just get worse. So that happy-go-lucky ending where we're supposed to feel like everything's hunky-dory because some people got in their cars and tied balloons to the roof of them and drove by someone's house, like, that doesn't solve anything. I think, if anything, that just kind of made me feel worse as a viewer. I don't think it was necessary. I don't think that it helps anybody. At the end of the day, you kind of just turn it off, stare at the television, and say, what the fuck did I just watch? I don't want to leave things on an entirely negative note, so I do want to say that it is very fascinating that they were able to put this together, and I do want to encourage you, if you want to see any part of this show without having to watch all of it to just look up Leslie Odom Jr.'s uh, big monologue in episode four uh, because I do think that that is a a great acting moment and honestly the most enjoyable part of the series as a whole. Thank you for joining me today in my rant and rave about love in the time of corona. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. This series honestly did really make me laugh with how 
cheesy and stupid it was and how seriously it took itself, uh, even though it was just a mindless cash grab. But I enjoyed going through it with you guys, nevertheless. I hope you enjoyed it too. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. I put out new episodes every Thursday. I'm Chloe Rodriguez, and thank you for listening to this week's episode of Unwatchable. See you next time.